welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Kyle Brennan Marquez, Associate Professor of Law and William T. Golden Scholar at the University of Connecticut School of Law. We will discuss his draft article, Revitalizing Stare Decisis. So welcome to the show, Kyle. Thanks, Brian. I'm really excited to be here. Oh my God. I can't tell you how excited I am to have you on because I'm, as you know, a huge fan of your work in general. Um, and I always enjoy reading all of your papers, including I was so excited to see your letter in uh, in the green bag recently. I'm always happy to see your stuff. And this paper was a lot of fun and I'm really looking forward to talking to you about it. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that it's available if law reviews are interested in it. Yeah, I yeah I've I've heard that through the grapevine. I'm pretty sure it's still true. Um, and uh, no, I do plan to send it out. I think this this uh, cycle it's gone through a few um, incarnations, but I'm I feel like we're zeroing in on roughly the right form now. Sweet, sweet. Well, so law review editors, if you're listening to the show, keep your eyes peeled for this piece. I think it's great, and uh, you should definitely check it out. But Kyle, I wanted to start. I wanted to start the interview by asking you, what's the problem with stare decisis? Well, I think, I mean, in a nutshell, the problem is um, that it is supposed to operate as a constraint on judicial decision making. Uh, meaning, it uh, if it's if it were working properly, um, it would uh, presumably, in at least some cases lead to uh, outcomes that would be different than if we didn't have it. Um, and I just really don't think, at least in the most important constitutional cases, that it is working as a constraint at all, that it's more a matter of um, uh, sort of a rhetoric. So, of course, you know, whenever the court decides if it's going to overturn its own precedent, it, you know, whether it decides yes or no, it will give some some discussion typically of stare decisis, certainly if it's overturning. But even when it decides to keep precedent intact, it often will explain why stare decisis uh, contributed to its analysis. But that um, uh, this is, this is uh, I think, you know, to call it sort of smoke and mirrors might be too strong or too pejorative, but uh, I think it's, it's maybe um, uh, window dressing. And uh, that really, at the end of the day, when it comes to the most uh, controversial, politicized, high stakes uh, areas of law, the sort of stuff that, you know, makes its way across the front pages of the New York Times and the Post and so forth, um, the kind of stuff that non-lawyers, you know, have, have sort of heard of, uh, that really stare decisis fails to be any kind of bulwark at all. Um, and I think that, I think that the that the basic uh, reason many diagnoses have been offered over over uh, the years, and this is a this has been a long and uh, question of interest among legal academics and 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 occasionally among sitting justices um, of the court. And uh, I can get into some of the details of the different proposals and specific issues I've identified. But in broad strokes, I think the big problem is that is that at the end of the day, no qualitative standard, meaning a standard like a typical legal standard that identifies factors um, and requires judges to sort of evaluate those factors in the in the context of a particular case, is going to be up to snuff, that we actually uh, need something much um, uh, more wooden and mechanical and stringent that can actually have some constraining force, because otherwise there's just too much play in the joints and the Supreme Court justices, who are, after all, excellent lawyers, can always find ways within the um, kind of uh, space of the qualitative factors to uh, see the case in a way that conforms with the uh, you know sense of what the right outcome ought to be. And so that's why I propose a um, aggregate voting rule, uh, which would basically ask uh, when you're um, thinking about overturning a precedent at time two, what you have to do is you have to look at what the vote count was in the original case at time one, the case that actually inaugurated the precedent or, you know, originally made the holding. And you have to add those votes together with the vote count at time two, the people who would be for or against overturning the precedent. And the combined number has to be 
um, a majority. Um, and so, uh, in other words, the strength of precedent or its durability at, at time two would, would be a product um, of uh, the sort of vote count uh, at, at, at time one. Well, what's, I mean, what's special about stereodicysis, right? I mean, things change historically all the time. Is there anything about stereodicysis that should make us think that it's especially important to the way the judiciary or the Supreme Court in particular works? And is there any reason we should think that, you know, we need something like stereodicysis in order to make the judiciary and its decisions legitimate? Yeah, that's a great question. And I want to sort of say at the outset here that um, I think there are highly plausible uh, arguments. Uh, I I don't ultimately agree with these arguments, but I think there are sort of serious, uh, certainly coherent, intellectually rigorous, and depending on one's priors, maybe normatively appealing arguments that we really should not have started as sciences at all. Um and uh, that there's a rich vein of scholarship along these lines. Um, uh, this this is not a position that's ever been explicitly endorsed by any sitting member of the Supreme Court. Justice Thomas has recently gotten um, as close to this position as as we've seen in the pages of the U.S. reports uh, when he's argued that basically there should be a sort of two track approach to stare decisis for what he calls garden variety errors or sort of run-of-the-mill, we know we get some things wrong, but we have to live with the consequences in sort of low-stakes cases, then we can have stare decisis as usual. But when it comes to um, what he calls demonstrably erroneous precedent or, you know, errors that are they're so manifestly at odds with the, with the underlying um, uh, understanding of the Constitution that we shouldn't have any stare decisis at all. So the reason why I say this, this kind of gets as close as we've seen in the in the actual opinions to the no stare decisis position is just that he kind of thinks it's no stare decisis in some cases, not all cases, but for those cases where he thinks there shouldn't be any stare decisis, it's basically the same kind of argument that scholars have made. And basically the argument goes like this. Um, at the end of the day, uh, if stare decisis is supposed to be a constraining factor in the, in the very way that I was discussing a moment ago, it's because, uh, at least in constitutional cases, it's because we would have a precedent that we're looking at on the one hand, and we'd have the constitution that we're looking at on the other hand. And we look at the precedent and we think, eh, that doesn't seem right. But because of stare decisis, I'm going to prioritize what the precedent says over what the constitution says. And, you know, I'm happy to answer more questions about this if you, if you want to dig into it more. But, but, you know, one can almost kind of imagine how the argument goes from there. It's basically, look, it can't be that stare decisis uh, is so powerful that it could prioritize precedent, i.e., an opinion written by you know nine at the most, or you know signed onto by nine at the most um, jurists uh, at some point in our history takes precedence over the Constitution. That sounds crazy on just sort of straightforward constitutional theory grounds. Uh, and in those situations, uh, we should just default to what the Constitution requires, and there really is no room for stare decisis. So that's 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 somewhat of a long. Um, background, but I think it's important to sort of see the macro level stakes of this because I think one could, as I said, I don't share this view, but one could very plausibly hold the view that we shouldn't have stare decisis at all, in which case I imagine uh, you wouldn't be too worried about revitalizing it. Um, but I, I wouldn't say that I'm sidestepping that question here. It's more that my argument is really pitched in, in a kind of, you could say almost an arguendo posture in, in that I'm saying, look, if we think stare decisis is important, which is, of course, the mainstream view and has certainly been the dominant view among sitting members of the court since time immemorial and continues to be today, um, then we really got to think about how we would design the doctrine in a way that actually delivers the goals that stare decisis is supposed to promise. So if you don't buy it at all, and maybe you have good grounds for not buying it at all, then you're not going to embrace my aggregate voting rule. And that's fine. I, I, don't, I don't even have beef. I mean, we could have a different discussion about, about whether you should believe in stare decisis. And maybe I could try to bring you back from the precipice, you know, from, from apostasy. But if you're not going to believe in it, then, 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 of course, none of this, 
all of my arguments are going to seem sort of second order and in some sense beside the point. But if you do believe in it, which, which I'll emphasize again, is, is the mainstream position you know, by a large margin still um, and has been thought to be really integral to the rule of law for a long time, um, then I think we really got to get serious about uh, how this looks. And in terms of, um, you know, I assume we're going to have more time here to, to dive into the mechanics of the rule and so forth. But I think in terms of the other part of your question, Brian, about, you know, what role is stare decisis playing on my account that it's so important that we keep it sort of shorn up? And I, I guess what I would say, um, and, and the, the claim I develop in the paper is that stare decisis is really fundamentally related to separation of powers in that it is, it is a mark of the exercise of judicial power by contrast to political power. So judges are beholden to the past, not shackled to the past. Of course, the law can change and ought to be able to change, but they're beholden to the past. They are kind of role-bound or duty-bound within their role to take precedent seriously in a way that legislators and executive officials simply are not. So we know that, for example, representatives in Congress or in any state legislature, they may well look to the past for guidance, and they may decide, and indeed, by, by, by default or by inertia, they often decide to keep law on the books that is already on the books. But they're not obligated to do so, right? If a legislator said, you know, that past law, that law that we enacted a generation ago or a decade ago doesn't make any sense anymore, that would be the end of the matter. There would just be an argument on the merits of the substance of the law and that would be it. And if the legislature decided to kind of switch tack, we wouldn't think that anything had gone wrong in the process. In fact, on the contrary, legislatures are, are, are kind of theorized within a democratic system like ours as, you know, being responsive to the kind of present day will of the people. Or to put it more concretely, new lawmakers are often elected into office precisely so that they can change the law without feeling beholden to the past law or precisely to sort of move the law forward. And I think judges just do something fundamentally different. And stare decisis sort of is the doctrinal mechanism that we've been using or trying to use to uh, really kind of um, uh, ground that that commitment in practice. But it's not really working today, and which is why we need, the, I think, the more stringent version. Well, so before we get into the mechanics of your proposal, I wanted you to talk a little bit about the backdrop in against which you created it, because it seems to me that there's a kind of body of scholarship generated recently, which sort of suggests that something has changed in terms of how the Supreme Court thinks about or maybe does starry decisis and that on some level what we've got right now is like kind of almost like worse than nothing right why is that yeah so let me say that i think there are sort of two dynamics to this so one is the you know um uh, the elephant in the room um dynamic uh, i don't mean of this conversation but of the sort of all in some sense of legal commentary or sort of commentary on constitutional law in the last decade or two, that things just seem so um, kind of relentlessly and irreversibly polarized. You know, we see this in our confirmation processes. We see this in the, in the vote splits on the court, uh, in the way that the court has become um, a kind of object of political scrutiny, which is, you know, is, is not new to the last five years or 10 years, but is relatively new in a historical sense. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think it, it, it is related to other developments like the sort of cults of personality in the court and the, and the way it relates to the media environment. And there's lots of dynamics, but there's a sense in which the court is being kind of closely watched and is clearly a political actor, so much so that the promise of sort of controlling the court or, or influencing the court is, is exerting a gravitational pull on all of our electoral cycles, you know, federally now. Um, and that, and that, that, the, the sort of fever pitch of that is new, whether it's new by degree or, or sort of categorically new, I'm not sure. I think there's different scholars, uh, it, kind of within this canon that you've pointed to of, of sort of recent, um, you know, uh, we have, um, uh, something that's worse than useless now, if we're pretending like stare decisis works or we're pretending like, constitutional law is not just a, you know, politics by other means. I think within that canon, there are people that 
some people might say it's a matter of degree. Some people might say it's a matter of category, but I don't really have a dog in that fight per se. But I do think there's some sense that it is at its zenith right now in intensity, and it's hard to see how how the intensity would de-escalate. Um, so that's part of it. The other part of it is the question of, well, you know, whether the court is more politicized now or subject to political dispute or in the crosshairs of our electoral politics or however you want to put it, there's also this question of just stare decisis by itself. Did stare decisis sort of ever work better than it than it has now? And my answer, and this is something that I don't explore so explicitly in the paper, but 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 maybe I should consider doing it, or or it might merit even follow on writing, is that actually in some sense this problem I'm identifying with stare decisis has really been there all along. So I think it's 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 accentuated, um, and it's and it's very much on public display given the role that the court is playing today and particularly with the Trump administration and so on. Um, but I think that the idea that at the end of the day, qualitative standard, a normal kind of legal standard is just going to be too manipulable in this context um, is, is actually a claim that really sort of uh, uh, holds true reaching much further back in time and maybe it was sort of endemic to the whole um, uh, enterprise. And the reason for that um, is, is uh, you know, I think kind of goes back to what I was describing um, as the foundations of the skeptical position of stare decisis. You know, the idea that, well, look, if stare decisis is telling us that we have precedent in our, on, you know, on the right side of the, of the ledger, that's telling us one thing, and we have the Constitution on the other side of the ledger that's telling us something else. Stare decisis is supposed to supply a reason to favor the precedent over the Constitution. I think the justices have been sensitive to this dynamic, and their answer has not been to give up on stare decisis, which is what the, which is what some of the skeptical scholars would 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 argue for, but instead is to sort of use the language of stare decisis or infuse opinions with the language of stare decisis when, in fact. They tend really to prioritize their view uh, of what the Constitution um, requires. And whether this is a bad thing or a good thing, I think, um, is difficult to say. Questions about sort of judicial role morality, I think, are always quite complicated. I mean, there's a way where, for me personally, what this kind of provokes is some sense of like, you know, heavy is the crown. I mean, I don't know what I would do in, in the role where... Uh, I potentially have, uh, you know, uh, at my disposal, the power, or if I can, if I can develop a strong enough coalition of votes, the power to undo a precedent that I find horrifying or even evil, you know, would I do it? Should I do it? Should I feel bound by stare decisis? I'm not sure. But I think the general story is that even though we can point to cases where stare decisis is the thing that the courts have emphasized, I, I just don't buy that it's really what is actually doing the work at the end of the day. Well, so maybe talk a little bit about the proposal that you make in the paper. In other words, like, what do you think, how do you think we could reconceptualize stare decisis in a sort of sort of programmatic way that would make it a kind of followable rule as opposed to a sort of hand-waving principle? Yeah. So I, I think that you know, if we go back to this idea about separation of powers and the idea that respect for precedent uh, or, you know, a sense of beholdenness to the past, again, not not being shackled to the past, but being kind of by by necessity sort of uh, uh, responsive to the past or, um, uh, you know, being on burden to work through the past if you're going to change it, not just break with it in the way that a legislature might. Um, if that's the animating value here. And that's one of the core um, uh, features of judicial power in our system. You know, you trace it back to Article 3 in the federal system, but I think it's, it's broader than that, the sense of what, what judges do when they wield power by contrast to political actors. Then the question would be, well, how can we take that principle and, as you say, make it programmatic, or as I put it in the paper at various points, kind of hardwire it in to the process? whereby we, we negotiate the dismantling of precedent in a way that would not be subject to the manipulation uh, worry that I've identified or in your language would make it into more, uh, you know, a true kind of sturdy rule. 
And I am not claiming that I've come up with the only way to do this. I think there could be many ways to do it. I mean, after all, rules can be very stupid. I mean, just in the sense of, you know, as we talk about these days, like smart smartphones or smart thermostats, like rules can be really, really dumb. Like you could, you could have it be a coin flip. That would be a rule. That's, that's non-gameable, right? That can't be manipulated. Um, but that would strike everyone, I think, as crazy. Uh, and so the question is sort of how would you formulate a sturdy rule that has this kind of hardwiring respect for precedent um, uh, into the process um, payoff to it that also seems to be kind of plausibly related to the broader goals and our sense of how the, how legal development ought to occur. And that's where I got the idea for this aggregate voting rule. And the idea is basically, you know, uh, at some level, the core intuition behind this is that it actually just feels different. If we just take a step back and before we get all to my rule and all the scaffolding around it, just, just think, does it feel the same or does it feel different when the court overturns a precedent that itself, the precedent was 5-4 versus overturning a precedent that was 9-0 or 8-1, you know, a, a very kind of sturdy majority. And my intuition is that the answer is these feel different, that for the court at time two to undo work at time one that was 9-0 seems different than work at time one that was 5-4. Uh, and the reason is that there's some variable strength of Precedent. Now, I'm not claiming that vote count at time one is the only um, uh, proper measure of strength of precedent. In fact, in an ideal world, it kind of in an all things considered way, like you and I could just discuss as, as scholar observers, I think there's lots of other variables you might look to. You might look to how many times something has been cited or what kind of sort of, uh, you know, has it, has it become, has a precedent become infused in our culture? Like, for example, Miranda um, is not just, or Gideon, right? These are not just a strong precedent by virtue of a of a of a vote count, Brown v. Board of Education, but because of how they've sort of worked their way into the fundamental kind of architecture of our law and legal culture. You know, so there's there's lots of ways to think about the strength question, but I sort of flatten that all down as a, you can think of it almost as a sort of as a as a kind of compression algorithm into the vote count because I think vote count is a reasonable proxy for all of those kinds of variables. And the idea is like, look, if you want to undo precedent that had a really sturdy majority at time one, you can do it, but you need a really sturdy majority at time two. You need an even better majority at time two. And if you want to undo precedent that was kind of flimsy at time one, and probably by virtue of being flimsy, somewhat politicized and controversial in the first instance, then you don't need as strong of a majority at time two. That is more susceptible to evolutionary uh, change. And so, uh, again, I don't claim that this is the only way to make the make the respect for precedent idea kind of programmatically infused into the process. But I think it, it, it strikes a kind of um, elegant or intuitive, you know, relationship between strength and, and, and durability. And one that I think works as a, as a non-manipulable proxy variable, i.e. vote count for lots of the things that we might point to in a deeper qualitative way. But the problem of course, is if you make it qualitative, then you've resurrected the very problem uh, that I was describing at the outset about manipulation. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how it would work in in practice. Do you have any examples of sort of what it would look like for the court to think about whether or not a particular precedent is worth maintaining on stare decisis grounds or not? Sure. Yeah. So I think in in practice, um, let me let me sort of divide that up into into two layers. One is just what would like how would this actually work what would what would this sort of sequence of of you know analytically of of the of the doctrine look like um and the way it would work on that front would be uh uh the the court would would have a case at time two that um raised the question of whether they should undo a precedent from time one and the justices at time two would all decide just sort of jumping right to the merits of the issue what they thought uh, the right answer was to the case. Uh, and then having um, decided what they thought the right answer was to the case, ju just like they would with a matter of first impression after deliberating and after hearing all the arguments and so forth, then they'd have a kind of a vote count at time two. And they, they would then ask, okay, is our vote count at time two, once we combine it with the vote count at time one, sufficient to make out an aggregate majority? Uh, if it is, then we can then we can move forward and just give all of the reasons why at time two we we 
we wanted to adopt the rule that we did, just like you would in a matter of first impression. Um, and if it's not sufficient, then uh, stare decisis would sort of bar um, uh, bar the overturning. And, and justices who disagreed uh, with that, i.e. justices at time two who really wanted to undo the precedent, could write separate opinions just like they can now explaining you know, explaining their objections. And the only wrinkle would be that that could potentially be a majority, right? So it could be a, a majority dissent, so to speak. You know, it could be six justices in dissent saying, hey, had it been up to us, we would have undone the precedent from time one. But given the rule, we didn't have the votes, but we're going to lodge, you know, our grievance, just like dissents um, often, often lodge um, the grievance. So that's kind of mechanically how it would work. And then I think in terms of what I'm envisioning in like a richer sense of how this actually would go is that it wouldn't necessarily even make precedent harder to undo. I mean, it is relative to the status quo world. If you buy my skeptical account, you know, the, of, of the manipulability of the, of the current qualitative standards, of course, this does make it harder as such. It is like a move toward more difficult kind of formally speaking, you know, because we're moving essentially from zero, but but I think that the idea is not to just freeze precedent in place. It's really to encourage at time two um, uh, greater sort of deliberation, moderation, and compromise. And so a good example would be, for instance, one case that if you just applied my test retroactively, one, one kind of difficult case for me, um, or difficult in terms of my own you know, uh, commitments, I should say, is Lawrence v. Texas. So Lawrence v. Texas, um, you know, famously holds that uh, uh, anti-sodomy laws, you know, criminal prohibitions on sodomy are, are unconstitutional. And in doing so, it overturns Bowers v. Hardwick, uh, which was a case from only 17 years before, um, you know, in the 1980s. And um, Bowers v. Hardwick was five to four. Lawrence v. Texas is also five to four. And so under my rule, uh, that would become an aggregate 9-9, which would not be sufficient to um, undo the precedent. Now, the wrinkle, though, is that in Lawrence v. Texas, Justice O'Connor has a concurrence um, where she argues that the specific anti-sodomy statute in Texas was unconstitutional because it distinguished um, between homosexual and heterosexual sodomy. And she says, well, that's an equal protection problem independent of all this other stuff the majority is talking about with respect to substantive due process and sexual um, autonomy and privacy and so forth. I don't sign on to any of that, but I see this as an equal protection problem. I voted with the majority in Bowers, meaning in the 1980s, I voted that it was that it was constitutionally permissible to criminalize sodomy. And I stand by that. It's just that here we have an equality problem in the statute that wasn't present before. Now, under my analysis, this is, again, a 5-4 to 5-4, because O'Connor is making very clear she's not joining that majority opinion. She would not overturn Bowers v. Hardwick. In the world, though, where we had an aggregate rule, it's just not clear to me that this would mean that Lawrence doesn't come out the way that it came out. It might mean that it comes out um, the way, you know, that Justice O'Connor saw, um, uh, 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 saw the case, or that there would be some kind of compromise position in between these two that allowed them to undo Bowers, but still maintain um, some of the kind of uh, framework intact. Now, I'm not saying I favor that on policy grounds. Um, I just am saying that I think that the kind of um, uh, incentives that this would create within the court to reach across the aisle, to try to come up with more ideologically diverse coalitions, to move a little bit more slowly when making change, um, is a feature, not a bug. You know, And sometimes it can be frustrating if, if it's a if it's a type of change that one individually is very enthusiastic about, uh, like for me, Lawrence would be a good example with gay rights revolution and other people have other examples. But I think that moving more slowly on the margins and in this more sort of uh, building um, a compromised way is actually uh, one of the things that stare decisis is supposed to be about and is very much at the heart of the common law tradition. Well, so reading your paper, I mean, I my kind of takeaway was the idea that, you know, the court should care about how strong a prior consensus was when it decides whether or not to overturn that consensus. In other words, stare decisis should not be just what was the outcome, but also kind of how robust 
was the outcome. But in the paper, you also kind of talk about a literature that looks at Supreme Court decision making almost in a kind of like prisoner's dilemma kind of fashion. Like this is consensus building, repeat, repeat players, thinking about outcomes and so on and so forth. I mean, to what extent do you think that dynamic within the court is sufficient to accomplish the goal that you're trying to like ruleify? Or do we need a stronger rule? in order to cement that kind of strong precedent versus weak precedent distinction? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I think that there is a sense in which the uh, bargaining kinds of dynamics or like the game theory type of analysis that I point to would suggest that, you know, in an unregulated world, which in this context means, you know, not subject to a stringent rule like this, just kind of business as usual, judges might uh, manifest, you know, at least over time in the aggregate kind of dynamics of cooperation that we wouldn't otherwise expect, given ideological disagreements and so forth, on the basis that, that they know they're going to be repeat players, and basically, they don't want to burn bridges, and they want to kind of cooperate across cases. And we know, of course, from anecdotal, you know, um, uh, information, uh, you know, that, that, um, that, that some version of vote trading goes on on the court, you know, to some extent, how explicit it is, is not, is not sort of clear from an outsider's perspective. But, you know, of course, they're sort of thinking across a portfolio, so to speak, not just in the individual case. Um, I do think that that does supply kind of a, a reason in the, even in the absence of a rule, or like I said, in an unregulated environment to think some of this would still happen. But I don't think it's sufficient. Um, and I think the basic reason is twofold. One is that I think uh, given the dynamics is to sort of go back to one of your first questions about, you know, w- what's so new about this or, or why, why should we be especially worried now or should we be especially worried now? Um, given some of the dynamics of polarization uh, at play within the court and also in our broader political culture, I think that um, some of these, nat- you might say, natural tr- uh, cooperation equilibria that's the, that game theory modeling would predict in environments like this have uh, basically broken down. I mean, I can't speak for what's going on for these particular nine people and all the complex relationships and whatnot, but one way of describing, I think, what's going on at a macro level in our politics, including our constitutional politics and in our court system, too, is a sort of breakdown of the kind of a basic uh, reciprocal buy-in and trust that is required for these kinds of cooperation dynamics to occur. So even if they're still occurring to some extent, I think it's been dampened. And But the other reason, and in some ways the more, the more sort of, um, uh, you know, fundamental thing is that I think um, uh, natural incentives to cooperate to get to the marginal point that you need in order to in order to sort of cross the goal line are great, but that they don't actually um, f- fully capture the the sort of uh, principles that I think underlie stare decisis and that we should really care about here related to deliberation, uh, you know, moderation, s- slower, um, kind of more, um, more, more compromise heavy uh, change because, um, because often, uh, uh, really what you need to engage in the deeper kinds of compromises and in some ways the more creative kinds of compromises, you know, creative doctrinal solutions to some of these problems is to be forced into cooperation. So, you know, emergent cooperation or sort of natural dynamics of cooperation that set in informally because of the knowledge of being a repeat player and so forth um, are great, but, um, uh, but sometimes uh, they just don't go far enough. And what you really need uh, to actually get people to cooperate in a more robust way is to force them to do it. So, you know, I mean, I can use an example that I'm sure will be um, you know, familiar to you too, Brian, and thinking about, you know, faculty is trying to make decisions. Um, you know, when we have meetings and we, and we run things by consensus, uh, which is, it's, just like the common law system and stare decisis, a very slow moving 
um, <laughs> mechanism often. And I think that, you know, you might say, well, look, we don't need to run this by consensus. Um, uh, you know, we don't need to really get everyone or, or essentially everyone on board. We don't actually need unanimity. I don't know how it is at University of Kentucky, but at UConn, we don't need unanimity. But 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 it's not just a majority up-down vote, typically. It's like we really, for doing important things, we really want to get the, the bulk of the faculty on board. It would, it would only be if we had to make a decision and we had no other option uh, that we would resort to just a true, you know, let's raise hands and go with the majority, even if it's only 51%. So the aspiration is something that approaches unanimity or is at least very consensus-oriented. And, and you might say something like that, well, why do you need that when everyone at the school is going to be all the faculty are, you know, people might leave and come and go, but for the most part, they are definitely repeat players. They're going to be there for a long time. They have natural incentives to cooperate with one another and to not burn bridges because, you know, you burn a bridge today and tomorrow you're not going to be able to get somebody on board with your initiative and so forth. And so isn't that sufficient? And I think I'd say the same thing. I'd say, well, that's really important. And actually, it's a lovely thing that that, that that does tend to occur. People do tend to play nice and, and be cooperative because they know that they're going to have to continue cooperating. But there's lots of times when that's not enough. What you really need is you need to actually, you know, figuratively lock people into a room. Though I was joking at one point that maybe it would work better if they actually locked us in the room, you know, uh, particularly after the lunch has, has already been taken away. Uh, but, you know, you need to figuratively lock people in a room and say, look, you need to come up with something that's better than just just an up-down majority. You know, it doesn't have to be unanimous, but it's got to be stronger than that. And I bet you can do it. Left to your own devices, you wouldn't have to do it this way, but now you have to do it this way. And doing it this way, you know, sometimes it means that you don't get anything done, sure, or that you get things done much more slowly, but the results tend to be much better reflective of the actual pluralism of the institution. And, and in my experience, just better, more creative. Well, so Kyle, I'm going to break character for a second and ask you, like, how would this work in practice? I mean, is this like something that could be legislated, do you think? Or would it just have to be the Supreme Court adopting this principle as its own new stare decisis rule? Yeah, that's a very, um, that's a very rich question. So I think the Supreme Court could certainly adopt this principle as its own stereotypes principle. And I think that the Supreme Court could also um, even mandate that the lower federal courts, you know, to the extent that the same kind of logic would apply, for example, to en banc appellate uh, courts or something, or even panels, depending on which, which um, uh, circuit we're talking about and how they treat their own precedent. I think the Supreme Court might be able to kind of mandate this as a, as an aspect of horizontal um, stereotypes sort of at every, at every layer um, whether Congress could could foist this upon the court, I think, is a much trickier question. And um, you know, uh, the the um, the separation of powers implications of Congress uh, telling um, telling the court what to do, I think, are. Uh, fodder for lots of really interesting and technical um, federal court scholarship that um, that I have uh, made my way through. And the upshot is that um, not that those scholars don't know what, what they mean, but that but that we don't actually have a, a global a global theory of this. So we know that Congress is allowed to make substantive changes in the law in a way that can dramatically impact what the court does. We know that the Congress can, for example, override um, judicial determinations um, uh, about an area of law, broadly speaking. So one famous example of this is we have the Smith v. Un um, the Employment Division case, uh, which, which is a free exercise case from 1990 that says that um, as long as a law is um, uh, neutral on its face and generally applicable, that if it, if it tends to have a disparate impact on a religious group, that it does not pose a, a, a free exercise problem. Um, and in response to this holding, which was which was widely disliked in some corners of the world, uh, you know, Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that sort of directly said, like, we don't like the Smith case. We want there to be now by statute a new right. And we're directly sort of rebuking what the court does. Um, I don't think anyone would think that that's a uh, separation of powers um, problem. This this principle even reaches as far as Congress writing laws that 
name specific cases by docket number and resolve them as individual cases, um, uh, which is which is uh, which is sort of crazy if you're not familiar with these cases. But there was a case a couple of years ago called Bank Markazi, where basically Congress had become frustrated with the Bank of Iran, which is basically the sovereign entity, um, dragging its feet in terms of making good on a judgment um, in a case they had lost for material support of terrorism. Uh, and you know, the Bank of Iran had made all these legal arguments about attachment and jurisdiction and blah, 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 blah. And Congress just said, enough is enough in these docket numbered cases, which is just one basically consolidated case. Uh, the assets will hereby be attachable, you know, forthwith. Um, so it's not even a generally applicable law. They're basically telling the courts what they have to do in this case. That was challenged on separation of powers grounds. It's okay. So I think when it's substantive law, really there is essentially no limit at all to what Congress is allowed to do. On the other hand, I think if it's kind of the internal affairs of the court, um, then we start to see more limits. Um, and, you know, but, but even that, I mean, we know that there could be I'm, I'm not at all in favor of this myself, but we know that there, there could be the capacity, you know, for court packing, right? Or Congress can decide to, to get rid of some of the lower courts if it wanted to. In theory, it could increase the number of, uh, of justices potentially if it wanted to. So some types of internal affairs are okay, fair game constitutionally, whether they're wise policy or not. And some types presumably, I mean, could Congress say, you know, the federal uh, judges are, you know, hereby have their, have their salaries reduced to $1 a year? I don't think so. Um, it, you know, I think that would be sort of paradigmatically kind of a, a one branch menacing another. Um, so where this would fall, I mean, this is a very long way of saying I don't know the answer and it's very complicated. I think there is a colorable argument that Congress could, by ordinary legislation, enforce a uh, requirement um, uh, like this. Uh, you know, one interesting analogy, which I think is of a, a special resonance today because of what's going on in the world with policing, is, you know, people are very enthusiastic. I mean, they've long been enthusiastic, but now it's much more in the, in the public eye about um, abolishing qualified immunity as a defense to 1983 uh, claims. And that's interesting because that would be, so Congress wrote, you know, Section 1983, it's a statute that just gives the, gives the sort of right of action for the violations uh, by, you know, of the federal constitution by state officials. And the courts came up with qualified immunity. I mean, it has a historical pedigree, but they, but they kind of fashioned it from thin air in, in the sense that it's not part of the statute at all. So it's sort of just true sort of judge made rule. Um, and now there's enthusiasm for having Congress go overturn that. And I think, um, you know, we may well see a separation of powers kind of fight about it in some form, but I think most people tend to think that that would be perfectly permissible for Congress to do. And that's interesting because that's not a substantive law change. Exactly. It's a change to, or, or I should say, it's not a substantive law change in the same way that say that, that just changing the standard of what counts as religious discrimination is a substantive law change. It's, it's changing the sort of architecture of how claims work or of adjudication. And I think that's closer to what I'm talking about here, right? The idea would be, look, the stare decisis, uh, doctrine is is it's not substantive law in the sense of of just a normal substantive legal standard of liability or whatnot, but it is kind of substantive law in the same way that qualified immunity is. It's a it's a legal tool that the courts have made that Congress, if it doesn't like it, can change by statute, and it's not sort of hardwired into the into the Constitution. Um, in fact, famously, this is one of the arguments that the skeptics make in the scholarship who are who are enthusiastic about the idea that when push comes to shove, you should, you should follow the constitution, not precedent, you know, among other constitutional theory arguments, one just sort of clear fact in the favor of that camp is that stare decisis doesn't show up anywhere in the constitution, even implicitly. I mean, it's not, it's not obvious that it, that it is sort of required by the constitution at all. And so the courts kind of made it up, so to speak, and just like they made up qualified immunity. And so maybe Congress can, can retool it. Well, so Kyle, in closing, I feel like there's a lot of people out there, or at least some people out there, who are like, you know, start decisis is whack, good riddance. Why should they like your proposal? And like, why should they think that this is a good idea? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a huge question. Um, 
I think at the end of the day, what I would, what I would, the, the sort of, uh, thought experiment I would, I would pose or Socratic question I would pose for that camp would be, what do we think ultimately is the distinction between judicial and political power in the form, in the form of it? So we know that courts tend to do some things and legislatures tend to do other things and, you know, each, each has limits and whatnot, but, but we also tend to think that it's not just about sort of uh, scope of jurisdiction, right? You're in your corner, I'm in mine. It's also what, what they do, the way that they're wielding power. And so I think there might be different answers to that question, but for me, uh, it's not that, it's not that stare decisis is, is, is sort of exhaustive. It's like the only thing that distinguishes the two. I think one other important thing that distinguishes the two, and I talk about this a little in the paper is the case and controversy requirement. Uh, so, you know, courts hear cases, they don't issue advisory opinions. Um, and I mean this, by the way, I should say in our system, right? It's not unimaginable that you would have a court system that doesn't work this way. In fact, there are many in other parts of the world. I'm not saying this is sort of essential, the platonic form of judicial power. I just mean that in our system, as contemplated in the Constitution, as it's grown up and sort of as an, out, as an outgrowth of a common law tradition, what do courts do that is distinctive? And I think they hear cases and they have uh, a certain duty-bound um, respect for precedent or obligation to take precedent uh, uh, seriously in some respect. Um, and that if you ultimately think stare decisis is whack, then you must think that that's not true. Um, you must think that something else is doing the work to distinguish judicial power from political power, or you must think that there is no distinction. So to the people that say that there is no distinction, or that's where your mind ultimately goes, I don't think I can say anything to sort of, um, bring you back into my fold, but, but I also, um, think that we have much bigger problems than the mechanics of stare decisis at that point. And if you think it's something different then then I guess I would ask, what is it? And what is it in a way that doesn't ultimately sort of depend upon or entail something like respect for precedent? And so uh, I think, you know, you don't have to buy my aggregate voting rule um, because you might still say, well, respect for precedent does matter. It ought to be hardwired in, but we should do it a different way. You might say, well, respect for precedent does matter. Stare decisis does matter, but we don't need to hardwire it in because, you know, Brennan Marquez and these other um, sort of, um, you know, prognosticators of disaster can tell us that it's not working at all. But look, it looks like it's working at least okay. After all, the court's not just totally dismantling everything. Um, you know, but I think, but I think that's the question I would get people as they're sort of thinking this through as a matter of their own commitments and especially, you know, lawyers and lawyers in training thinking about our profession and what we're doing, you know, what is it that we think marks judicial power as distinctive? Um, if not, if not this, um, or if not partly this. Well, Kyle, thanks so much. Uh, I really enjoyed reading your paper. It was great talking to you about it. And I, I, I really encourage listeners to check it out because it's, you know, it's, it's a cool piece and there's a lot in there that we didn't, we didn't quite get to. So. Thanks, Brian. And um, the, the piece is up on SSRN. And I, I, th I think like per usual, you know, you, you can sort of get my email through that or, you know, you can find me on Google if anyone, if any listeners have, have thoughts. Um, you know, I, I always love to hear from people who are reading the work and thinking about it. For sure. I'll put a link to the paper in the liner notes oh, great. for the show and I'll link to your faculty page as well. Great. Thank you.
Maybe someday I'll feel free to laugh at this romance And hate myself for what I'm thinking of Although beggars can't be choosers Hearts like mine are not good losers When we play the crazy game of love Every time I called you honey When we played the crazy game of love I'll admit you kept me guessing But I had to learn a lesson When we played the crazy game of love Something tells me that I should have looked before I leave I wonder just what I was thinking of I guess I'll never understand it Maybe that's the way you planned it When we played the crazy game of love 